Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. So today's episode is going to be dedicated to Kirsten on Overnights. She's asked me to do this a couple of times, and so now we're going to do it. Right, so today's topic is going to be feline pan leukopenia. So we're going to talk about like what it is, like what kind of virus it is, why we can use a parvo test on it, who's affected by it, treatment options, and what the prognosis is. All right. So just to start off, like what is feline pan leukopenia? So pan means all, and then leuco means white blood cells, and penia means like less or none. So pan leukopenia means that we have all the white blood cells are really low. So this is just, that's kind of like what the name actually means, but really like this is a really highly contagious virus that can pass from cat to cat very easily. So the virus that causes it is actually feline parvovirus, which, all right, so it's not the same as canine parvovirus. They're actually like are two different viruses technically, but they are related. So if anybody's interested, these are actually also related to the mink enteritis virus. So now, now feline panleukopenia or feline parvo, those are basically interchangeable because it's the feline parvovirus that causes feline panleukopenia. So feline parvo, canine parvo, and mink enteritis virus are all like put into this category called the carnivore protoparvovirus. So they just basically like group them together since they all do very similar things and are very closely related. This parvovirus for, for felines is actually found everywhere in the environment. So it is found in all parts of the United States and in most countries around the world. The main reservoirs for these, like the most of the places that you're going to find them to like these big outbreaks of them are going to be in places like kennels or pet shops. Animal shelters is a really big one. There was a really cool study that was done out of Germany that I'll talk about later. Um, in unvaccinated feral cat colonies or like cat populations, like people like just like feeding all of the feral cats. And then in areas where there are lots of groups of cats that are housed together. So this could even be like some of the cat shows or if you have like just hoarder houses, things like that. In the warm months, like the urban areas are more likely to see the outbreaks of the feline parvo because more cats are coming into contact with each other or going outside. You know, during the winter, people aren't really letting their cats outside very much, but during the spring and the summer, they're more likely to let their cats out. And so we have more cats who are intermingling. And so we kind of see this more as the, the warmer months start coming in. All right, who is affected by this? So Usually kittens are the most affected by this, um, typically between the ages of three to five months. Technically, anybody can be affected by this. Any cat can be affected by this. But the most severe ones are usually kittens because they don't have that immunity that they need for um, to like fight off panleukopenia. And unfortunately, in the, those three to five month olds, like death is also more common in this age rather than in adults. And like I said, it can affect any age of cat, whether they are unvaccinated or immunocompromised. So they can be vaccinated and immunocompromised, meaning that there's something that is making their immune system not work as well. So they can have vaccines, but also have like some really bad illness and then can still get panleukopenia or feline parvo. 
Um, it can also affect all felids, so meaning tigers, lions, you know, bobcats, all of those wild animals can. And even some families of like the minks and raccoons can be affected as well. Um, so this doesn't technically affect humans or dogs, so not humans at all, but dogs is an interesting one. So they have found in some of these, like this was found when they were doing some of these studies, like there was a study done in Germany, where they like took a bunch of populations of cats in shelters and stuff, and then were checking to see like when outbreaks were occurring, what kind of viruses they were shedding. And they did find that there were some cats who were shedding the canine parvovirus. So even though like the feline parvovirus doesn't affect dogs, they can then affect like some dogs if they were to give, if they were to shed some of the canine parvovirus. It's really small amounts though. So like the chances of them affecting them are pretty low. Um, but also there have been some canine parvoviruses that have affected larger cats, like your larger felids and some domestic cats as well. You know, that is something that we've always talked about before, like, you know, it only affected dogs, but they have done some studies that have shown that some parvoviruses can affect cats. Again, it's like not a really common thing. It's a really uncommon thing when that happens. So how do these cats become infected? So this is shed in anything that's a secretion, really. So it's shed in the cat's urine, it's shed in the cat's stool, in its nasal discharge, and it's discharged from its eyes. When it coughs, like any of those things that's going to secrete some sort of fluid or liquid or droplets is going to be infected. Um, the nice thing is that these cats are only shedding for a really short period of time. It's usually only about one or two days that they're actually shedding for. So that virus comes out in that urine and that stool and those, you know, snot and everything for just a couple of days. But here's the sucky thing. And something that's really similar to canine parvo is that the virus can live in the environment for up to a year. So yeah, maybe they're only shedding those two days, but it's actually just staying in the environment for that long. And and when I'm talking about the environment, it could be the environment outside, and this can be the environment inside. So this includes like bedding, cages, food dishes, your hands, your clothing that you, you know, that you're wearing with this infected cat, other people's clothing who are coming in and, and handling the infected cat. And because of that, Cats who would never saw each other can still infect one another. Because let's say, you know, you're at the hospital and you go to one of the cages, this cute little kitten who feels really bad and, you know, you cuddle with it and then you don't realize that that cat had feline parvo or had panleukopenia. And then you bring that home to your animals. You have your scrubs on still. You didn't wash them. You maybe didn't wash your hands. You come home and now that is all over you and you've now brought that home to your cats you know and like i said it doesn't mean even though your cats have been vaccinated it doesn't mean that your cats cannot get it so we do want to be really diligent about like washing all of those things really carefully and i'll talk about like how to clean things later but let's say the infected cat goes outside sneezes on a rock and then wanders off and then the next cat comes up sniffs that same rock even four days later, it is still 
on that environment, is still on that rock. And they very easily can pick that up and then get panleukopenia from it. Um, it can even be with fleas as well. So some fleas they have found have been infected when they've been on the infected cat and then jump onto the non-infected cat. Super crazy, right? Just fleas. And then the incubation period on this is usually about two to seven days. So like, let's say that cat rock walks up to that rock that the other cat you know, sneezed on, inhales it, goes about its business for two to seven days. So like even seven days later, and then suddenly starts coming up with symptoms. So it can be, you know, quite a period of, period of time. And now in that period of time, your cat comes into, let's say your house and suddenly your cat sneezing on things you don't even notice, or your cat starts feeling sick and all the other cats in the household are now affected by that. And I think that's a really big thing to talk to owners about because, you know, like a lot of some of these other diseases, there's a lot of times when we don't even know that they're sick and they're already spreading it to the rest of the other cats in the household. So we need to watch all those other cats very closely to see if they are getting any signs of infection. But also this is a really big thing for all the people who are handling the animals at the clinic. You don't want to bring this home to your cats either, you know, so just making sure that if you have been handling a panleukopenic cat, that you just are really diligent about washing your hands, take your scrubs off before you go inside, take your shoes off before you go inside. So that way we just like decrease the chances of contaminating our own pets. All right, now let's talk about what feline parvo affects. So this is very similar to what canine parvo affects. So it wants to infect cells that are rapidly growing or rapidly dividing, essentially. Dividing cells mean that they are growing. So the places in a kitten and puppies that they're rapidly or rapidly dividing are going to be in the bone marrow, in the intestines, and for, for feline parvo, in the developing fetus of a pregnant queen. And in case anybody doesn't know, a queen is just basically an intact female cat. So we know now that parvo likes the rapidly dividing cells, so it likes bone marrow, intestines, and fetuses. So what are the clinical signs that we see? So the first thing we mentioned is that it really likes the bone marrow. So it's the bone marrow and also the lymph nodes that it attacks, and both of those actually help to make white blood cells. So if we're attacking the bone marrow and we're attacking the blood cells, we then make a shortage in white blood cells or panleukopenia. We cannot make enough white blood cells. This usually causes a fever, and that fever can be like waxing and waning, meaning sometimes we have a fever and sometimes it goes away. We'll see that quite often in our patients, like it's 106 and then suddenly it drops down to 102. And it's not uncommon to see temperatures between like 104 to 107 in these kittens. It causes them to be very lethargic, depressed, They'll have like nasal discharge, mostly because of the fact that they can't fight off any other infections. And then eventually that fever will turn to hypothermia, meaning that the temperature is too low. Now, real quick, I'm just going to do a side note. Notice I did not say hyperthermia for our fever. A fever and hyperthermia are two different things. The fever is there to try to get rid of this virus versus a hyperthermia means that it's because we cannot lose enough heat fast enough. So those are things like the cat gets trapped in a dryer or a car, things like that. 
A fever is the body's way of trying to deal with this virus. And then hypothermia, so the cat's temperature drops down too low. We don't really have another name for it because really like it drops down too low. That's not great. But drops down too low mostly because like that's a sign of death, unfortunately. And that's usually because they're developing like septic shock. Um, I'll go over like shock things another time. But basically they have bacteria that is translocating or moving from inside their guts into their bloodstream. And that bacteria is like running amok and it makes them very sick. And eventually they'll go into something called DIC. Again, another topic for another day. But um, the that acronym for it, like we actually call it death is coming because it's just, it's not a good thing when you have DIC. All right. And also we talked, we talked about how it it attacks the bone marrow, it attacks the lymph nodes. Now we're going to talk about how it attacks the intestines. And this is really common, like with canine parvo. You've probably heard me talk a lot about all these things with canine parvo already. But with our feline parvo, it's going to attack the intestines in multiple ways. So it goes into the crypts. So if you imagine like, you know how like in um, Ariel, the Little Mermaid, right? And you're in Ursula's den and there's these creepy little things that come up from, from the ground, the spirits or whatever they're called. It's like the spirits of all the mermaids that, that didn't um, do what they, they, they didn't like fulfill their promise or something like that. And those creepy little green things that come up. Okay. That's what the inside of the intestines look like. Those are called villi or villa, but the villi are in there and they like wave around and their goal is to try to help like grab as much nutrients as possible. And then between each one of those villi, it goes into what's called a crypt. And the crypt is there to also help with like absorbing things like water. So the um, the parvovirus likes to attack at both of those locations. So you'll feel like they have really thickened intestines because it's like causing those villi to swell and lots of bacteria is going through where the crypts are and it's just not a good time. The intestines are not happy. So typically it's going to cause them to have vomiting. Usually that'll be one to two days after the fever starts and they're usually going to be vomiting up bile. And real quick, another side note. So it's bile with a B like as in boy, not vile, like a V as in Victor. So it's bile. When they're vomiting up that yellow or greenish stuff, that is called bile. They are usually hypersalivating, so they're just like drooling excessively because they're just so nauseous. They'll sometimes have diarrhea. I know that's always what we think is the mainstay of a lot of our parvoviruses, so like of canine parvo and of feline parvo, but actually it's not always present. So it usually in, in feline parvo will present after the vomiting has already started. So vomiting is actually going to be one of our first signs. And technically a fever is the very first sign, but vomiting is also one of the first signs. They may also have hemorrhagic diarrhea, meaning hemorrhagic is like when you're hemorrhaging, so blood. So you, they might have bloody diarrhea, but that's only in about 3 to 15% of the cases. They'll be really nauseous. They won't eat, so anorexia. And then they'll also be dehydrated. And that develops really quickly when they're dehydrated because they're losing so much fluid 
by this by the salivating and by having tons of diarrhea and tons of vomiting. So they cannot hydrate themselves quickly enough if they even can, because they also just feel really nauseous, remember? Like sometimes you'll actually, like one of the signs, you actually see a cat or a kitten go to the water bowl and just sit there staring at the water for like hours because it wants to drink. It is so thirsty. It is so dehydrated, but it just physically cannot because it is so nauseous. You might also see in these cats that they have a lot of abdominal pain. So we just talked about how their intestines are really thick because of the uh, virus attacking the villi and also the crypts of the intestines. And then that also makes them have enlarged mesenteric lymph nodes. So the mesenteric lymph nodes is just a lymph node, but it lives like right next to where the small intestines are essentially. Another place that we didn't really like cover a lot yet is another place that likes to have rapidly growing cells are the brains and the eyes. So I talked before about it attacking the fetuses, but really like of the fetuses, it's pretty specific to usually the brain and sometimes the eyes. So if the pregnant queen becomes ill, it may not be severe. Like it may be a really mild case of it. Like, um, you know, people who might have COVID might, some people might have like just a sneeze and a headache and some people who are extremely sick because of it. So you, know, you can have very different outcomes from the exact same virus, even if they got it at the exact same time with the same virus. So you can have, definitely have different outcomes. It's the same way with parvovirus. You, know, you can have some cats who have really severe infections from it and some cats who have very, very mild infections from it. Again, we'll kind of talk about like why that might be later on. But if you have a pregnant queen, there's a couple of things that might happen. Depending on like where they are in their pregnancy cycle, it may be that the queen aborts the litter. So just gets rid of it like because of that infection. Not like she's trying to, it just happens. It could be that it creates a fetal mummy and not like a mummy who's like dead walking around and we're not like putting, you know, toilet paper on it or anything. It's just, it actually like, it shrivels up. So it dies, but it just like shrivels up inside the uterus. Or it could have an embryonic reabsorption, meaning that they get pregnant and instead of the fetus growing, it actually just kind of dies off and reabsorbs into the body. Or you can also have stillbirths as well. But let's say the kittens are born, they're fine, they made it through all the pregnancy, but mom did have panleukopenia, it can cause them to have really severe cerebellum damage. So we talk about there's two, tar there's two parts of the brain. The very front part, the big part that you see like in other cartoons and everything like that, that's called the cerebrum. So that's like the biggest part of it that has the most control over the most things. But in the back of the brain is called the cerebellum. So the cerebellum is there to help control your movement. So it controls the nerves, it controls the muscles, and it controls the bones. So it's very specific for movement. Um, if the kittens are affected in the womb when mom is pregnant, they'll get a syndrome that's, there's two names for it. It's either called feline cerebellar ataxia or cerebellar hypoplasia. I'll break those terms down really quickly. So feline cerebellar, so the back, back little brain, ataxia, 
meaning that they're very wobbly when they're walking. Or cerebellar, so back of the brain again, hypoplasia, meaning that little tiny back of the brain is really small. It doesn't function correctly. When we see these cats, they often look like they have something called intention tremors. Like you'll see them like attempt to walk. And as they do, their whole body's like tremoring. They're really uncoordinated. I don't know if anybody actually saw the kitten that I saw the other day, but actually like his back legs were out and it was really wobbly. Like it almost looked like a back dog, like it had hurt its back because its legs were just kind of sitting like a human. They're spread out in front of it and it was just sitting on its butt. But it was really wobbly and like even its head was really wobbly. And if you try to get it to stand up, it like would fall over pretty quickly. So that cat, I think, had gotten the infection before from mom. And then unfortunately, we were seeing the signs of cerebellar hypoplasia and the signs of panleukopenia in that cat. But though, like I said, they're really uncoordinated and they're mentally, they're all there. There's no, it's not like they um, don't know where things are or they're blind or they can't see things. I mean, there are times when it does affect the eyes, like I said. But they're cognitively there. They know what is happening around them. They know where their food is, which I'm sure that's got to be so frustrating for these cats. They know where their food is, but they cannot make their brain function correctly to get to the food to be able to eat. So this becomes really like a big challenge for these kittens when they're growing up because they just like, again, they like, they can't, they can't really figure things out like they normally would. So instead, like they have to eventually get used to like how to help make themselves move a little bit better. And sometimes people will do like physical therapy and stuff for this as well later on. But the goal is to try to get them to help move in a way that they'll be able to do functional things like eat and hopefully use the litter box, which is definitely a little bit hard for these guys. All right, how do we diagnose our feline panleukopenia or a feline parvo? So a lot of people, you'll notice that we take out a parvo test and because we just talked about how they're very closely related. They're not the exact same disease. They're not the exact same virus, but they're very closely related. But since they are not the exact same virus, that is not 100% accurate. And then also because of the fact that like nothing is 100% accurate, you know, you know, it depends on like where we are in the disease, how much they're shedding. If they're already on the mend, then and they've gotten past that time that they shed. Oh, sorry, hold on, that's my dog. I have to go get her. All right, sorry, she's figured out that I was in the room. So they got past that time when they were shedding. Remember, they only shed for one to two days. So they've gotten past that time of shedding, and we test them. It may not show a positive on that parvo test, so we'll have a false negative if that's the case. The next thing we use is blood work. So sometimes in this blood work, it'll show that panleukopenia, right? It'll show that we have all the white blood cells are low because our, our bone marrow is not making them and our lymph nodes are not making them. So that's a technicality because it actually starts off with you just having neutropenia. So if anybody remembers listening to the blood work episode, so neutrophils are a white blood cell. It is really important for them as to be like the first ones in the battle. They're the front line. They go and destroy anything, no matter what it is. Like they go and destroy it. That is their job. Nobody is asked to like, there's no strategizing. Like literally they just go destroy. So they go 
first to go help destroy this virus, not knowing what they're getting into. And so we'll have a neutropenia. So meaning we have low neutrophils or low, one of those first white blood cells. And then we'll have lymphopenia. So lymph, the lymphocytes, they are the second ones who usually come in. They're the second most abundant as well. And typically they're more the strategy ones. They're more trying to figure out like, how are we going to sequester this virus? But you know, then we'll suddenly have this neutropenia and then a lymphopenia. So we might just catch it and it might just be a neutropenia at first. So low neutrophils because we caught it really early on in the disease. So technically then we have to say, well, is this possibly panleukopenia? If it fits all the other symptoms, then, then maybe. You can also have a rebound neutrophilia during recovery. So neutrophilia means that we have high neutrophils or high white blood cell. Those first white blood cells that go and try to be like the front line to try to kill everything, right? They they suddenly make this rebound because they start to feel better. And now we're going to make tons of white blood cells. So we can try to get rid of this virus. So maybe we take the blood and it's already like starting to feel better. And we have this rebound neutrophilia. So it looks like it's really high. And then we really don't know, like, is this truly a panleukopenia? We don't know. So instead, if we need to do like confirmatory testing, we're going to do things like a PCR. So that's where we send it out to the lab. It looks for that virus's DNA and then tells us if that virus's DNA is inside that animal's body. If so, then we know that they have panleukopenia. But like I said, maybe we see that it has neutrophilia. Maybe we see it has a lymphopenia. We're just like not sure. Is this really a parvovirus or feline panleukopenia at all? Well, some of the differentials are going to be things like salmonellosis meaning that there's salmonella that makes them infected throughout their whole body. Those are things like they find in like if, for people who feed some raw diets or they feed things or they like eat things outside, like um, songbird fever comes from salmonellosis. It's where they just eat a dead bird. It doesn't have to be a songbird. They just call it that. But they eat a dead bird outside or a dead rodent or whatever, and that can have that bacteria called salmonella. It can also be from cats that are infected with FELV or FIV. Again, we'll do another podcast on that. But um, those are two really important viruses that happen in our, especially in our feral cat population. They can also have those concurrently. So like, let's say we have a cat who has FELV and is also has panleukopenia, but is fully vaccinated. That can definitely happen because their other virus, the FELV, made them immunocompromised, so made their immune system not work very well. And then even though they've been vaccinated for panleukopenia, they can still get it because their immune system is too compromised to be able to fight. Like their little warriors of white blood cells are just not up for that fight. Okay. All right, let's talk about our prognosis for this. So for kittens under eight weeks old, the prognosis is pretty bad. It's not not good odds that that kitten is going to leave that hospital. For cats that do not have treatment, the prognosis is grave. Like 90% will die if they do not get treatment. Now, for our older cats with treatment, the prognosis is much greater, especially if it's treated early in the disease. Now, if they've been sick for you know days and they're just getting worse and worse, that's not good. They're they don't have a very good prognosis. 
But for the, the cats that do survive past the first five Js, the chances of them recovering are really greatly improved. Like seldom does the disease actually go for longer than five to seven days. It is usually resolved by then. So if they can make it to that first five day mark, they're probably going to be okay. Now, how do we treat our feline parvo? So ideally we want to hospitalize them, right? And when we do this, we have to talk to the owners about like, what are the treatments we're going to do? One of the big things is that there is no medication that is going to kill the virus. Like there are not a lot of viruses in the world that we have a medication that kill that virus. So we're giving medications, but none of them are actually killing the virus. We're just trying to help support the cat's body systems until it can overcome the virus itself. So one of the big things is that we need to have like extensive critical support for these guys keeping them in isolation so that we don't have them exposing everybody else. And we need to like be really diligent about wearing gowns and gloves and stuff so we don't pass it from that cat to another cat. Next, we need to create like correct their dehydration. We just talked about how they're super dehydrated. They really need to drink water, but they just can't because they feel so terrible. So we need to give them IV fluids. Sometimes we're going to add like you know, KCL to it or dextrose or something else to help support them as well. The next big thing is we need to stop that vomiting. So usually using Serenia or Ondansetron or even Reglin. So Serenia is going to be something that helps stop nausea. The Ondansetron also stops nausea, but in a different way. It just hits a different receptor. And then Reglin is something that makes their intestines move, which when they're their intestines are so damaged and they're really um, edematous or like have a lot of fluid in them because they're really sick from this virus, then they're they're not going to want to move. They're, the intestines don't want to move. Like imagine you're really sick with the flu in bed. You don't want to move either, right? That's the same way for these intestines. They do not want to move. They do not want to do work when they feel that terrible. So we need to give them something to help stop the vomiting and the nausea. The next big thing is providing nutrition. We want to give them small amounts very often. This is why doing like an NG tube or an esophageal tube is really um, a, a really good thing for these animals because the if we start getting food into them, it helps promote the healing of that GI mucosa and helps them reestablish some of the like barriers that are usually in their intestines to help stop that bacteria from going from the intestines into the bloodstream. So if we could like help stop further infection, that's ideal, right? We want to promote the healing and stop further infection. And then another big thing is antibiotics. So I just told you before that no medication is going to kill this virus, right? That's not actually what I'm doing with those antibiotics. I'm actually trying to kill off the secondary infections that are likely going to come. We know that the, the cat eats food that is going to have bacteria on it, and that there's bacteria in the GI system in the gut all the time anyways, whether you fed the cat bacteria or not. There's always going to be bacteria there. We want to stop that bacteria from moving from the GI system into the bloodstream. So when that does happen, we're giving antibiotics to try to help with that. So we try to help stop infection in the bloodstream so that the cat doesn't become hypothermic and it doesn't become septic. And then they're also likely to get it that 
secondary infection because the fact that their immune system isn't working well. You know, if your immune system was working well, you'd be able to fight off some of these infections. But when your immune system is not working, all of those white blood cells have been destroyed that are supposed to come out there and fight like whatever comes up have been destroyed. They're just literally just going to give up. They're not going to be able to fight another fight with another thing. You know, they're already fighting a fight against a virus. They're, they can't go and then fight a fight against bacteria as well. So it's just going to let the bacteria cross, and then we're going to get sepsis. Another thing is sometimes we'll use fresh frozen plasma. So that plasma is trying to help support what's called oncotic pressure, meaning that if I have a really big molecule in the bloodstream, water wants to follow that. So when we give this fresh frozen plasma, it makes water come into the blood vessel, and therefore we can keep up their blood pressure. It also gives back a lot of the clotting factors that are used up when they're having like bleeding issues or when we're drawing a lot of blood from them. So every time we draw blood from them, we think about the red blood cells, but we don't think about all the other repercussions from this as well. We're also losing a lot of clotting factors. If we're losing just tons of things that help us make a blood clot, then they're going to bleed really easily. And we're talking like these tiny kittens. You know, these are like typically three pounds, two pounds. So if we're drawing too much blood from them, we're losing a lot of clotting factors. We don't want to do that. But giving fresh frozen plasma is a way to kind of help give those back if we need to. And then the last big thing I'm going to touch on is like deworming them. So, you know, you see on there all the time that we put on there to give like Panicure and these these granules because they're like, we need them to eat it, but they're not eating. Um, if it has an NG tube or an esophageal tube, just put it down the NG tube or the esophageal tube. Like the biggest problem with these as well is that they also have secondary infections of like different parasites a lot of times. And if we can't get those parasites under control, we are not going to get the panleukopenia under control. So we want to make sure we get that under control as well. All right, how can we prevent this virus from spreading now? So one big thing is isolating our infected cats, making sure that they can't spread it to other cats. You know, in the hospital, we keep them in the isolation ward. We wear an isolation gown. We wear gloves so that we make sure we can't spread it to other cats. And then also when we're cleaning things, we have to make sure that if we're cleaning with like the rescue and stuff, that we spray it and we leave it for 10 minutes before wiping it as well. Otherwise, another thing you can do is like if it's somebody at home, talk to them about getting rid of all of their bedding, all of the bowls, the litter boxes, the clothes, the people's clothes and the animal's clothes. You know, people like to dress their animals. So get rid of all of it, ideally in a plastic bag so that way we don't have like other cats going through the garbage and then getting sick as well. But we want to get rid of everything that they possibly can. So that way we don't have to worry about the contamination from those things. But you can't get rid of everything, right? Most people are probably not going to get rid of their couch because their cat had panleukopenia. So one thing that they can do is they can use dilute bleach to help cl like clean that as much as possible. It does need to sit for 10 minutes or more at room temperature before it gets cleaned. So you know, make the mixture, scrub it on where it needs to be scrubbed, and then wait 10 minutes and then clean it. And the reason why is because we want to try to get as much contact time as possible. It's not always the scrubbing. It's actually the time that it's touching that causes the death of these viruses. I also 
apologize if I don't know if I said this or not, but the dilute bleach is usually a 1 to 32 mixture. So one part bleach and 32 parts of water. There are other like things that can kill it, like peroxygen disinfectants. There's one that call, that's called potassium peroxomonosulfate. It's basically trifectant, if anybody knows what that is. But um, other things is like make sure you pick up all the waste first off of whatever you're going to be cleaning. So if it's a couch and you're going to be cleaning it, make sure that's all cleaned up and then spray it down with our dilute bleach after that. Now, it seems so easy, like, right? I'm like, okay, just spray it down and it all goes away. And it's not like that at all. We're spraying it down. We're trying to clean it as best as we possibly can. So ideally, we don't spread it to the next animal that comes through there. Because that can very easily happen, especially because this parvovirus is very difficult to destroy. And it's very resistant to lots of different things. So it makes it hard to be able to like get every nook and cranny to know for sure that you have you know, gun every space that that cat has ever been on. So, like, remember how much they they jump on things. Like, kittens jump on things all the time. My kittens jumped up on, you know, the refrigerator and stuff. I wouldn't think to clean the top of the refrigerator, but we need to clean the top of the refrigerator and everything that the cat has ever touched. And then the next big thing is this practicing good hygiene ourselves to help prevent spreading. So getting a gown or changing clothes, you know, before you come home so that way you don't spread it to everybody else at your home. Using a gown at the hospital so you don't spread it from cat to cat that way either. And then if anybody else in the family does have cats or, or there are other cats in the household, just talking to the owner to monitor the other cats that it's already been in contact with as those cats might get really sick as well. And then one interesting thing is that when the cat is infected, it's technically, so we talked about how it's like only shed for one to two days, right? But that's through direct contact, like sneezing in one cat's, from one cat's face to the next cat's face. So there are ways that they can have a virus that was shed for a long period of, longer period of time. So viruses in the urine and stool can last for up to six weeks. So still, again, like this is a long time for a virus to survive. And then lastly, we're going to talk about vaccines because vaccines are really important for stopping the spread of, of panleukopenia. So technically, once a cat has survived the infection, they develop a lifelong immunity to it. So meaning they... they if you were to test it every three years, we would check to see if they'd have enough of the um, of that vaccine or enough of that immunity in their system to not have to worry about coming into contact with it. And then when we're talking about vaccines for kittens, you know, ideally you want to start the kittens out at like six to eight weeks for their first vaccines. And the panleukopenia is in the FVRCP vaccine. So feline, rhinotracheitis, Caliciavirus panleukopenia. So that's what our FVRCP, feline viral, rhinotracheitis, caliciavirus, and panleukopenia. That's what those vaccines are when you're giving those. So like I said, the vaccines are super helpful. Kittens, we want to start at six to eight weeks, and then we're going to give them a booster every two to four weeks, depending on like which doctors you're talking to until they're at least 16 weeks old, and even then some go to 19 weeks old as well. 
And then kittens can receive a temporary immunity through like the transfer of antibodies in the colostrum. So like, let's say that mom had gotten vaccines before for panleukopenia. During those first couple of weeks, she that kitten already has some um, immunity to it because mom had been exposed to it and then gave their milk so that that way they were able to pick up some of that immunity. It's not for very long that they can receive it for. It's a pretty short amount of time. I think it's only 24 hours if I remember correctly. But at least it's like, you know, if we can get them a good 24 hours before they actually get sick, that would be better. And then once the cat gets older, you know, those vaccines kind of turn into either based on manufacturing recommendations or whether they're at a really high risk for getting those things that we vaccinate for. So adults sometimes get them every year, but most places I believe are now doing every three years. So at least every three years to like help revaccinate them for these things. But like I said, even cats who have fully vaccinated, who have fully vaccinated cats, they're have been instances where cats have been exposed because of really high loads of that virus. So just like, let's say they went to a boarding facility and suddenly there's like, everybody has panleukopenia there. Well, that cat who already had vaccines is more likely to get it because of the fact that they are so overwhelmed that their body just like can't fight it off anymore. So like, let's say you're juggling knives don't do this. Okay. But let's say you're juggling knives, right? Now I have like one knife throwing it up in the air. Okay. I might be able to handle that. Two knives throwing it up in the air. Uh, I'm probably going to cut myself, but I might be okay. Now I put three knives, four knives, five knives, 10 knives, 20 knives, right? I am overwhelmed and cannot do that. I will 100% cut myself. That is the same way for like these cats who are vaccinated but have this really high load. So they are vaccinated and shouldn't be able to get it, but when they have you know, 15 people throwing knives at them and they can't juggle it, then we're going to have a problem. You're going to cut yourself. Or in this case, they're going to get panleukopenia. All right, then my last note is just like, if you know that a cat is pregnant, you should not, you should not give them the live vaccines. They should get the inactivated or modified live vaccines. Most vaccines nowadays are modified live, but you should be paying close attention to that if you know that the cat is pregnant, not to give them live vaccines if that's the case. All right, it is story time now. So it was my my sister's birthday the other day, and I was thinking about how for her birthday every year, like I do this literally every year, is there is a song that I used to play for her when she was little, and it was called... um, I think it's called It's Your Birthday, if I remember correctly. And it's by this rapper called Icy Blue. And now everybody in my family listens to rap. Actually, no, let me clarify. My dad does not listen to rap and I do not listen to rap. But everybody else in my family listens to rap music, even my mom. So my sister hated this song so much. It was not really like really a rap because, yeah, anyways, but... She hates this song so much. So for her birthday, every year I send her the song, so she has to play it. Like, I will just keep sending it to her until she plays it, essentially. And then that way she's able to hear it every year. But I was thinking about my sister and just our relationship as we grew up. And we, I'm not sure that we liked each other. It's hard to tell. Like, we had a very interesting relationship. But she tried to kill me 
so many times. Like one time she strung up this like fishing wire from we had like a doggy run and then there was a wall on the other side. So she like tied this fishing wire to one side of the dog run and then held it on the other side of the dog run. So when I was going through with my motor, with not, not a motor scooter, didn't have that. With a regular scooter is it sliced my neck open, like sliced it all the way down. It was, I still have the scar from it, like for how deep that went. And she tried to decapitate me. I think if I was going any faster, that I probably would. Yeah. Man, she did some crazy stuff. She threw, pushed me into rose bushes one time. It was terrible. Anyways, but now we have like a relationship where we talk about these things and it's, it's funny now. Isn't that funny how it's funny? Because it really wouldn't be funny at that time when she tried to kill me all the time. But anyways. All right. If you guys have any questions, let me know. Um, I will, of course, I'm, like I said, I'm always taking uh, requests. If anybody wants anything specific, I'm happy to go th- through any of those things with you or to go through them on the podcast. Just shoot me an email, text me, find me in the hallway, whatever you need, and I will go over it with you. If you want to be on the podcast, let me know. You know I'm open to all of those things as well. I hope you guys have a great day.